The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Celebrating 10 years. Created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Reintroduced myself, I'm Eve Patton from the School of English here in Trinity, and I'm also very fortunate this year to be the Deputy Director of the Long Room Hub. Uh, and I'd like to welcome everyone uh, to this panel on the futures of Ireland on a very wet February day. Ireland is on trial before the nations of the world. Uh, many of you will recognise the words of Winston Churchill from his speech on Ireland that was given to Parliament in February, the middle of February in 1922, uh, in the aftermath of the signing of the treaty. Uh, all the world, he continued, is looking on at their performance. Well, in 2020, um, almost 100 years on, uh, I think we might have the sensation that once again, the world is looking on at Ireland's performance uh, as we try to address a series of problems and preoccupations, many of which I think Rita's artwork has uh, um, highlighted for us. Questions to do with the border, to do with Brexit, uh, to do with the nature of our identity and our communities, uh, how we're evolving processes for social justice and equality at a time of global change, what we're doing about citizenship, what we're doing about the Constitution. Do we have a roadmap for the future, or are we adrift on a raft in the middle of uh, the sea? Um, one of the things I think the Long Room Hub can be very proud of is that in its 10 years of existence, <coughs> it has kept Ireland as a subject right at the forefront of uh, conversations that have been happening between the Hub and all the, the partner disciplines that, that make up our communities. So we've taken this question forward through history, through law, through literature, through language. Uh, we, we've stretched it out to human geography and historical geography, even indeed down to our colleagues in genetics and neuroscience. Um, so I'm very pleased that this conversation is going to be continuing this morning in this panel. Let me introduce our uh, three um, brave panellists. Um, Lorna Carson, is, uh, who's going to speak first, is currently head of the School of Linguistic Speech and Communication Sciences in Trinity. Uh, she's the director as well of the Trinity Centre for Asian Studies, which is a multidisciplinary teaching and research unit uh, that brings together the university's expertise in Japanese, Korean, uh, and Chinese studies. So she's bringing that particular global context to what she's going to talk about today. And Lorna has a particular interest in how we learn and use uh, languages, but also what language change can tell us about our identities. Um, our second speaker is Connor Houston, and I'm really pleased to welcome Connor, who's come down from Belfast for today. He wears many hats and takes on many roles uh, including, uh, at the moment, governorship of the Irish Times Trust. But he's also founder of Connected Citizens. Uh, and this is a civic initiative which is bringing citizens together in Northern Ireland to think about and to realise the ambitions of Northern Ireland uh, in this period of 
challenge, let's call it, uh, in an inclusive and an informed way. So I hope that Connor will tell us a little bit more about that in his uh, nine to ten minutes this morning. And then finally we have uh, Aileen Kavanagh. And Aileen uh, has come to us having been a Professor of Constitutional Law at Oxford. She's now a Professor of Constitutional Governance here in Trinity. As you can imagine, she has recently been much in demand uh, for uh, uh, media uh, and policy commentary, um, given the climate we have. Uh, so I'm very grateful to her for coming along today to contribute to this discussion. The format is exactly as you heard earlier on. The panellists have nine, I think with my generosity I might have given them ten minutes to talk to you uh, and then we'll throw the discussion over to the audience and, and ask you for comments, observations, complaints perhaps and of course questions. Um, so on that note I will hand over to Lorna Carson who's going to speak first. and thank you all for coming out on this uh, wet February day. So as Eve said, as an applied linguist, I spend my time trying to figure out how multilingualism works, how we learn, lose, and use our languages in urban contexts. I'm interested in this very sort of close and interacting um, world that is a city, the urban environment. Um, we live in an increasingly urbanized world. Current estimates are about half of us live in cities across the world. And it's estimated that this will grow to two-thirds um, by 2050. In Ireland, two-thirds of us already live in urban contexts. And in neighbouring countries, UK and the Netherlands, nine out of ten people live in an urbanised area. So our lives are in urban settings. And we've studied the city and city life through a whole range of lenses in the arts and humanities, but also involving architects and geographers, as well as literary studies, sociologists and historians. And, and my work locates the city in this sort of social interactionist communicative framework, and I'm interested in issues of power and equity and well-being, uh, health, who we are and how we live and thrive. And, and the city and towns that we're in and that we come from are spaces in which intense human interaction occurs. We literally rub shoulders with people uh, on the pavements and in the streets. It's fleeting. People come and people go. You don't know how long they're here for, but it's always constant. And we know that the streets of our cities have changed utterly in the last 100 years. There's been a blurring of physical boundaries and distance, unprecedented mobility in terms of goods and people, and development of truly unimaginable, almost magical or mystical technological tools and devices that we now all carry as if we can't live without them. So we have seen these really substantial differences in the way that we live and work. And each of us is now more likely than ever to settle somewhere new. And the mobility is multi-directional in terms of our destinations and ages, very different from Ireland's previous status as a sending country of emigrants. And we're now a receiving country of immigrants. The impact of technology and new forms of work in which economic processes generate and depend on the exchange of information mediated by language is carried out on a global scale. And this is a really, really significant impact, not on just how we work, but our identities, how our communities are formed and our patterns of belonging. And it's now possible for each of us to be based in one location and work for a company elsewhere, to live in one city 
and maintain a close social and familiar network via communication tools, and we can be part of several speech communities all at once, simultaneously. And so these urban spaces in which we sit are part of a new networked identity space where the meaning of here is changing because it relates less to the national hinterlands, our counties, our provinces, and more to preference networks. And I think that our definition of our neighbour has expanded from this pre-industrial definition of the next village, or even the 20th century definition of the bordering county, to a global definition determined by our air routes, migration patterns, and digital communication. Multilingual languages is simply part of this fabric, it's part of our reality, and languages are bound up with all the ways that we live and be and work. And so the kind of ubiquitous, everyday multilingualism that we hear all around us in Ireland is dynamic, and it resists clear-cut classifications. An example is how our education system is trying to cope with the participation of African-born francophones, whose standard of French deviates from the prestigious standard of French French, or how our Irish language classrooms are coping with the fact that some of the keenest and most competent speakers of Irish are not necessarily Irish in the classroom. They are thriving because Irish is simply another language to add to the repertoires. And so there are definitely coexisting approaches to new linguistic diversity here. They're visible and they're in contradiction with each other. Part of the multilingual skills perspective that you see at all of these job fairs is this underused linguistic capital of the urban population and the importance of individual repertoires of language in terms of employability and therefore in language. But it's also problematized and stigmatized in terms of integration and cost. Politicians and the media focus on the perceived lack of proficiency in majority national languages amongst migrants or play off the acquisition of majority languages against the maintenance of minority languages and then criticise spending on translation and interpretation. In this model, language is seen as a deficit. It's an obstacle and it's a challenge to be confronted. And I, I'm not sure if you've seen in the media the little tweet about Princess Charlotte in the UK recently. Um, Princess Charlotte, says the mirror breathlessly, already speaks two languages at just two years old. And immediately the tweet arrived, so do most children of migrants, but I guess it's just less impressive when they're poor. <laughs> For many people, this multilingual city idea refers to metropolis, like New York or Paris or Berlin, but that's not necessarily the case. In Ireland, at least 200 languages are spoken all around us, and yet we're generally unaware of them. We find it difficult to distinguish between the languages we see and hear, and as a nation, like many of our neighbours, we aren't exposed to the study of language and schooling. We all know that Ireland <coughs> is a bilingual nation. Many of us know, of course, that Ireland is the Irish is the first official language and English is the second official language. But how many of us know that since 2017, Ireland has three official languages? Irish Sign Language was passed into law on Christmas Eve in December 2017, after a long campaign by the Irish Deaf Society. Yet Irish Sign Language remains mostly an invisible language on our televisions, in public life, in our festivals, and in this university. Extracts of one of my recent publications on the multilingual city was presented here in the Neil Theatre at a major conference three years ago, and it silenced the room. I had interviewed several native Irish speakers, amongst others, about their languages, and I'll read one of these extracts. 
I think we're not terribly attuned to language generally, said the speaker. And on a personal basis, I'm probably asked three times a week what language I'm speaking, when I'm speaking Irish, by Irish people. <laughs> Relatively recently, I was racially abused on a bus when I was speaking on the phone to my father in Irish. A woman started blasting that she was sick of us, and we were taking jobs, and her daughters were home with no work, and it was because of the likes of us. People occasionally get a bit shy around me when I'm speaking Irish, or a bit defensive. When people ask me what language I'm speaking, the response is, well, I always hated Irish at school. I can't stand it. It always initiates a strong emotional response, whether it's positive or negative. So in closing, for many, this multilingual, multicultural city where we rub shoulders with each other on the bus is a driver of progress. But for others, this world of social and political tension leads many to take refuge in ancient, if illusory certainties, holding on to what they have, looking to an imagined past of national uniformity and rejecting the other. And the growth of xenophobic, far-right nationalist and anti-immigration ideologies in Europe is, is truly frightening. Many accepted liberal consensual views about multiculturalism, <coughs> the coexistence of multiple cultures and languages, and the possibility to adhering to more than one set of cultural norms or allowing room for overlapping identities are being called into question. Governments are leaning towards policies based on the assumption that diversity represents a threat to cohesion rather than a means of allowing citizens to flourish and fulfill their full potential in this complex creative space that is our city. My hope is that in Ireland we might see some sort of ordinary multilingualism emerge, perhaps an accepted intermingling of different languages in private and public settings, where we don't fear the languages we don't understand or the mouths of those who utter them. And in the words to close of Jane Jacobs in 1961, cities have the capability of providing something for everybody, only because and only when they are created by everybody. Thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a privilege to be here from Belfast today, and uh, a delight to follow um, Rita Duffy earlier, a fellow Northerner, and somebody I have great admiration and respect for in your role in, in peace building uh, and art is um, extraordinary. I mean, it's a privilege uh, to be in the room with you today, and uh, as, as if we had planned, I'm going to talk about icebergs uh, shortly. So, um, and the other thing, I spent a lot of time uh, between Belfast and Dublin. It's kind of nice to come down at the minute from the north and say, well, at least we have a government in the north at the minute. And uh, it's not often we're able to, 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 to say that from our Dublin friends. So, um, as I think has been set out this morning, the future of, of this island has never been more uncertain. And uh, as has also been alluded to, we, we really have so many echoes of a century ago. The events of a century ago shaped the, the island that we continue to live on to this day. The decisions that were made a century ago around petition independence have shaped this island to this day. And I'm quite certain in making this one prediction in an age of uh, endless uncertainty is that the decisions and consequences of the conversations we have today 
will uh, echo into the next uh, century on this island. So it's, it's the responsibility of all of us to ensure that we're having a responsible conversation about the future of this island and, and, and the values that shape its future. Um, of course, we are about next year to enter what has been dubbed the second century of this island. Obviously, the history of Ireland goes back much further, but of course, it's the second century of Irish independence, uh, sitting here in Dublin, and of course, from Northern Ireland perspective, depending on your viewpoint, it's the second century of the creation of the state of Northern Ireland, and the second or the second century of the partition. All of this takes place, too, against the backdrop, as has been alluded, of massive changes happening globally. Human beings moving towards cities out of the villages, a fourth industrial revolution, and an unending era of disruption. This is the context in which the future of our island and our conversations must also be factored. We have to think bigger than just this island. And the question for me that I've often asked when I've thought about the future of Northern Ireland, the future of this island, is what kind of society do we want to be? What are the values that underpin that society? And I think that is the debate and the conversation that we need to be having. And in many ways, the, the raft upon which we can sit at this moment, or the roadmap that guides us, is, is already there. It's called the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, in 1998, the people of this island, North and South, endorsed an agreement uh, which had at its core uh, principles and values that should guide us to this day. Mutual respect, reconciliation, building relationships, human rights for all, good faith, new beginnings. It was all about relationship building. So for me, the spirit and values of the agreement still stand and should be our guiding light in whatever future uh, conversation we have about this, this island. And the Good Friday Agreement, I suppose, reminds us of two things. Firstly, peace comes dropping slow. The peace process has been exactly that, and we have not yet uh, reached the destination. In fact, it has gone much slower than many have hoped, although there has also, to be fair, been transformational change in Northern Ireland and across this island in the development of those relationships. And for me, one of the, the genius aspects of the agreement was the arithmetic, arithmetic that it contained. That is to recognise there are three sets of relationships that must be considered when talking about the future of Ireland and this island. And that is obviously the relationships between the communities in Northern Ireland, the relationships north-south, and the relationship between these islands. I see no other basis upon which we can have a conversation about our future unless we ensure that those three sets of relationships underpin that conversation. The Good Friday Agreement's genius was it was all about relationships. That was its, its construct and that is why it has, with many faults, it has endured for over two decades. And I believe that the spirit and values, and I want to be uh, distinguished between saying the agreement entirely uh, as against the spirit and values of the agreement, is what should guide us uh, moving forward. In, in many ways, I feel the time has perhaps come to take those spirit and values, to take those three sets of relationships, and have a conversation about how we create, in text speak, Good Friday Agreement 2.0, the updated and improved version. Let's take principles of mutual respect, of reconciliation, of building relationships. Let's take the British-Irish, the North-South, and the internal community relationships, and see how we can realize them fit for the needs of the 21st century. That's the kind of conversation I believe we need to have. So turning to the icebergs, what is on the horizon? Why do we need to be mindful in having this conversation? 
There are many, and, and I have picked, I suppose, three that I think that we, we need to be most wary of uh, in the context of the conversation about the future of this island. Uh, the first is one that has really been a shadow over Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement was signed, and that is around the issue of the past and legacy. We seem to be trapped uh, by our past and unable to escape uh, the issue of legacy. It is creating on a daily basis in Northern Ireland challenges around how we even have a conversation about the future. And there must be an acknowledgement that there is a society in Northern Ireland that is deeply traumatised. There are victims who have had no acknowledgement, no truth, no justice. Indeed, the society itself is traumatised by what has happened. So it is important that we find ways to respectfully acknowledge that. But we must also find a way uh, to, to find a balance whereby we don't uh, end up talking about the past to the point that we don't talk about the future ever. And the number of times I've been in forums or events or conferences where we talk about the future of Northern Ireland and seem to spend the entire time talking about the past. So I think there is a need to acknowledge the challenge and the difficulties, but find ways to allow that space to talk about the future to come. And one of the, to go back to my opening remarks, it's why the issue of centenaries next year is, is going to be so important. How we talk about those issues, how we mark those events, how we don't recreate or reenact uh, the events of a century ago, but actually try to take the lessons and learn from them and set a new course for the second century on this island. The second, uh, I'm sorry, one other thing on that is I think... Uh, there was an issue around how we're going to engage and pass the button from the current generation to the next generation, not just in terms of our political leaders, but in society generally. How do we empower our future leaders to understand the complexity of the past and the challenges of, uh, that our society has, but also be given the space to take Northern Ireland, to take this island in a new direction? The second issue that I think we need to be mindful of is the changing demographics, which is often talked about. And I frame it this way. We're all minorities now in Northern Ireland. The, the, the days of one community ruling over the other are, are over. And as if to highlight the point that I wrote the other day, there was a, a new um, piece of research uh, published yesterday by the Economic and Social Research Council led by uh, academics such as Pete Sherlow and Liverpool University, who published findings to say that in their most recent survey, there was only about a third of people supported a United Ireland in Northern Ireland, purely Northern Ireland. But perhaps more interesting uh, was, in their research, 28% of people identify as Unionist, 25% as Nationalist Republican, and 40% would not designate as either. This is the conversation we need to be having about Northern Ireland. I don't hear it in the media. I don't hear it in very much discourse. 40% of people in that survey are not identifying as Unionist or Nationalist. This is fascinating. This is a game changer. And very often, in fact, I was, uh, gave an interview in the Guardian newspaper last year, and I was quoted as being non-aligned. And I read it and thought, I, I didn't know whether I should uh, consult my lawyer as to whether I have been defamed and what this term actually meant. But I take it it is a descriptor for the 40% of people who don't like to be boxed as unions and nationals, who actually just, in the words of Seamus Mallon, don't care what we call the bloody place, so long as we call it home and want to find a genuinely shared way to share um, Northern Ireland, to share this island. So I think one of the things we need to think very carefully about is that perhaps creating a binary option is not the answer. 
Perhaps talking about border polls is not the way in which to construct the debate. And the third um, iceberg uh, on the horizon is, of course, the one that seems to permeate every conversation in, in the life of this, uh, this island, which is the B word of Brexit. I, I'm not going to overly dwell on that today. I've always, when, I, when asked uh, to give a simple summation of why Brexit is such a challenge for Northern Ireland, uh, frame it in this way. If our peace process was about one thing, it was about taking borders and identity out of our daily politics. And unfortunately, for all of us, Brexit is purely about Brexit, uh, borders and identity. So that is the fundamental challenge that we face, and it's the conundrum we face. And of course, it is an existential challenge to the agreement, because the agreement gives us the right in Northern Ireland to be British, Irish or both. What's that going to mean? Now that uh, being one of those Irish citizens, I remain an EU citizen, but I'm not a, 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 a I'm not a resident of this state. We're going to have some very interesting, I think, legal cases uh, in in the coming years on that. Secondly, the 300 areas of cross-border cooperation, 300 areas of daily life operate on an island, all island basis. What's going to happen to those, particularly if uh, Boris Johnson's plan for a Canada-style agreement uh, it is the direction of travel for the UK? And of course, the issue that Northern Ireland, unlike any other part of the United Kingdom, has constitutional consent at the heart of the agreement. So I have often argued that Brexit and uh, the Good Friday Agreement, on the face of it, are incom incompatible. And I think that, that we're going to have to continue responsibly to confront that challenge. And of course, added to that, it's not just about what people in Northern Ireland want. Brexit proves that London may move in one direction, Dublin may move in another, and the the children of Northern Ireland get squeezed in the middle. So I think we're going to have to bear that in mind as well. That's why the three sets of relationships is more critical than ever. So we need to talk about the future, and that's something I'm really interested in. I've dedicated most of my adult life to how we realise the promise of the agreement. But we seem to always struggle with how we actually talk about the future, because we jump back to the past or do what I just did and go through all the problems we have to confront. And of course, Lack of leadership in this conversation, lack of big vision and thinking, and a lack of collaboration um, are, are at the heart of why we're struggling. So for me, I think there are three things, and I, I launched an initiative called Connected Citizens when I was asked to address the One Young World Youth Summit in Bogota, Colombia in 2017. It was a great privilege because uh, I was introduced on stage by two Nobel Peace Prize winners, Kofi Annan, the late Kofi Annan, and President Santos of Colombia, both of whom in their remarks talked about the impact that Northern Ireland had on their journeys in terms of peace. So it was a really humbling moment for me coming from, from Northern Ireland. And I launched Connected Citizens at that event, and I shared, I suppose, three things I think we need to do in terms of talking about the future. First is framing the right debate and asking the right questions. I think we may all be guilty sometimes of jumping into the debate. For example, I, I, the media um, often talks about border polls, constitutional change. I think we need to take it a breath and take a step back and go, well, perhaps the question we need to ask right now is, what does reconciliation demand? If the, if the true outcome of what we're trying to achieve is reconciliation, perhaps that's the conversation we should be having on this island. And leave to one side for one moment the issue of whether we need a border poll in order to achieve that. So it's not taking away people's right to aspire for the United Ireland or to call for a border poll, but it's saying perhaps we need to have a different conversation to, as a starting point. Second point of that, and my Connected Citizens uh, initiative is that we have set values, and for me, it's the agreement. It's mutual respect, it's reconciliation, it's building relationships, it's ending sectarianism, something we really haven't yet done in Northern Ireland. 
It's about trying to aspire to what good government will mean. How do you deliver and impact people's daily lives? It's something we haven't even begun to discuss, particularly in Northern Ireland. And an issue, I think, that has perhaps been uh, also relevant in your recent elections here. So for me, it's about those values of reconciliation and genuine relationship building being at the heart of any conversation. And the third thing, then, is creating the trusted space. This is a very difficult thing because there are very uh, few trusted, uh, neutral spaces in which to have these conversations. Very, a lot of the initiatives that are happening in Northern Ireland and across this island right now are skewed or framed around a particular outcome. We need to talk about a united Ireland. My view is we need to create trusted spaces in which all of the options for the future are on the table. That is to say that we are not predetermining the outcome. So people are entitled to advocate for a united Ireland, whether that means one stick or two, to advocate for the status quo, to advocate for some kind of independent Northern Ireland, or some renewed Northern Ireland within a new United Kingdom, or perhaps even the, the models such as the Dalriada model, which is a, a new union of Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland, that many ten years ago sounded absolutely crazy, but actually now has a certain attractive logic to it, perhaps. So for me, that trusted space is about exploring all of the options framed around practicalities. I'm just conscious of my time, so I'll, I'll come to that. So the three things, right questions, endorsement of the agreement and the values, and creating trusted space in which all of the options for the future are on the table. And I've been very fortunate to build a network of hundreds of, of, of people who want to be involved in this decision right across society in Northern Ireland, right across the sectors, right across the generations, who just want to realise the ambition of the place they are proud to call home. And that, to me, is a far better way of starting a conversation and framing the debate, and that's what I'm committed to doing. And, of course, there's a new generation in Northern Ireland, 40% I talk about, who, who have a resilience, who understand and have a passion for their place, but also have a global mindset, have a global ambition for the place they call home. And I think that's what we need to focus on. I mean, I have uh, hats in the digital sector in Northern Ireland. I mean, if you had told me that Northern Ireland would be the go-to place for the film industry right now in the world, Ten years ago, you'd have, you'd have thought I was, was so mad. Uh, but it's incredible how um, Northern Ireland uh, is transforming for us, and I want to see that continue. So for me, it's about uh, investing. We built the bridge towards a relative peace. Now it's about the bridge towards prosperity, meaningful prosperity, and reconciliation. And um, I suppose just to go back in time, and it was interesting, Churchill in 1922, I was at an event last week where we were talking around the commemoration events that might be held next year in Northern Ireland, and somebody brought to my attention a speech given by King George V when he opened the Northern Ireland Parliament in June 1921, and I thought I'd just share a small extract from it, uh, which I think resonates very much with, with everything I've just said. I appeal to all Irishmen uh, to pause, to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, to forgive and forget and to join in making for the land which they all love a new era of peace, contentment and goodwill. May this historic gathering be a prelude of a day in which Irish people north and south, under one parliament or two as their parliaments may decide, shall work in common love for Ireland upon the sure foundations of mutual justice and respect. Uh, I think those words a century on still require us uh, to action and may still actually be relevant. In closing, I have had the opportunity and the privilege of addressing many conferences and meeting with many politicians and traveling around to advocate for an inclusive conversation about the future of Northern Ireland, about the future of this island. 
And I remind everybody, uh, last April, one of my friends, Dearham Key, was murdered in the streets of Derry. That is a sobering reminder to all of us, but particularly to my generation, that peace uh, is fragile and peace can be disrupted. And there are those who would still be intent on disrupting our progress and our peace. Put more positively, I have two little nephews, age four and one, and they may live to see the 22nd century all being well. And I often think they are the first generation on this island who have the possibility to grow up knowing nothing but peace and prosperity. And that's why this conversation matters, and it's why we can't fail in getting it right. Thank you. very much for uh, including me on this great panel and here in uh, the hub. Um, the, the hub in a way is a metaphor that I want to use throughout my very short um, talk. It's, it's a beautiful building with porous boundaries and we can see out and see in, it's a tribute to Jane, uh, what one extraordinary woman can do. And it provides this framework, this welcoming building that draws us all in for these truly interdisciplinary conversations. But to make it work as a hub, we need activity and vibrancy and interconnectivity, which the hub provides and the team here um, provides in, uh, uh, in abundance. Now, I, I'm a Dubliner. Uh, my first political memory as a very young child was uh, the death of Bobby Sands. I didn't know what that meant, but it intermingled with the Catholic iconography with which uh, I was brought up. I, I've lived for 20 years in the United Kingdom, working at the University of Oxford, and lived through Brexit, and really the symbol of a ship is so evocative, because before, during, and since then, uh, the United Kingdom seemed, felt like a sinking ship for all those on every side of that debate. Volatile, uh, ideologically trenchant in a way that it hadn't been uh, for the rest of my time uh, living in the United Kingdom. And in this volatile moment and an ill-fated referendum which was badly uh, constructed and uh, carried out, I wanted to move back to Ireland because I was attracted to the futures of Ireland, which was inspiring and a beacon uh, across the Irish Sea. And here I am and delighted to talk to you on this issue. So I just have three points in a very short talk, conscious of the expertise that's, that is in the room. So the futures of Ireland as a constitutional lawyer and as an Irish person working now in this great university, I want to start on a very positive note, and that is the tremendous accomplishment and achievement that is the referendum process here in Ireland surrounding constitutional change. Since I've moved back, and I'm partly moved or partly in the UK, I, I'm constantly trying to remind people of things that are taken for granted, and this is one. The referendum process here generates meaningful, respectful debate where both sides and all sides feel they have uh, a voice that they can 
put out into the public where it will be respected. The debate is by global standards, moderate and restrained and respectful. Why? Well, there are multiple reasons, but I'll just give you two. One is that putting the question to the people in Ireland is not a glib matter that can be just done on the back of an envelope. It has to go through the Parliament, it has to go through the Oireachtas. The question is chosen when the time is deemed to be right and care and consideration and caution is put into that, that decision whether to put the question to the people and what form that question takes. So yes, there is the demos, but there is also the discipline uh, of democracy brought to bear on putting that question. The second reason, and this follows on from that inspirational presentation by uh, Rita uh, Duffy, that the referendum process in Ireland transforms absolutes, ideological issues of identity and things that go to our very core. It translates absolutes into meaningful, more granular, more ordinary and more prosaic issues. So you take an issue like abortion, like same-sex marriage, there are countries where if these issues were put to referendum, there would be blood on the streets. Abortion is, is one of those elemental issues, and yet there was a meaningful, constructive debate on that issue, which moved beyond and beneath the question of whether anyone was Catholic or Protestant or um, uh, what their religious fundamentals were. But what would you do if a 15-year-old girl, and it was your daughter and me, was in this situation? What would you do? What would you do for your sisters, your mothers, and so on? Bringing the issue down to the basic human level, not the ideological level, is one of the secrets, I believe, of the success of the referendum process in Ireland, in the Republic. Okay, now we get to the relationships with the North and Northern Ireland. And I'll just start with the Good Friday Agreement uh, and, and echoing everything that has just been said. I reread the Good Friday Agreement this morning and every time I read it, I marvel that it was ever, ever agreed. It is a miracle. It is a miracle. It is a tribute to all the politicians on every side and all the civil servants. And I know Rory <coughs> Montgomery is in this room. And, and the, the, of all the values you mentioned, uh, respect and love, forbearance, the demand, the discipline of forbearance, of swallowing and compromising, blood, sweat and tears literally gone into that Good Friday uh, agreement and it is something that must be celebrated. Now, I'm just going to make a couple of brief points about it. It is true that it enunciates all the great values we would expect, mutual respect, reciprocity, parity of esteem, etc. Now, from a constitutional lawyer's point of view, how do you get that going? How do you provide the framework, the housing, the building for that to occur? We talk about power sharing, and that sounds cozy. What it is, in fact, is a series of very demanding rules whereby it is not a matter of numbers and a bare majority in the Northern Irish Assembly, but an, a commitment to getting the consent of both communities. 
that effectively means that both sides have a veto over the other. And that is why, however necessary that is, and of course it is necessary for breeding mutual respect and confidence and even bringing people to the table, it slows down government and it brings it to a halt, as we have seen. So, you know, the, the, these mechanisms are extremely important. Now, how did it succeed? How did this miracle occur? I have, I have three um, uh, ideas here for, first of all, clarity, second of all, commonality, and third of all, constructive ambiguity. Okay, so in terms of clarity, the rules are clear, the lawyers, the political actors knew you had to have some of these rules of engagement <coughs> crystal clear and down in writing. Those are the power sharing mechanisms. You have to be clear on that. You have to be clear on the core principles. Commonality. Now here, sadly and painfully, one of the sources of commonality in the hinterland of Northern Ireland was the existence of every element partner in this relationship being part of the European Union. That was an extraordinarily important backdrop to facilitating these relationships. Partly because we didn't have to go there to every single point of disagreement. We could just say from a legal, from a constitutional, and from a personal point of view, we can assume take it as read that we have certain legal structures in common and we need not go there. And that brings me to the constructive ambiguity and the ambiguity of the border itself. One of the reasons why the Good Friday Agreement came to be and is a success even when the government stalls uh, is that it left some issues unanswered. And it did not force people to take a stance on who they were, who they portray themselves to be, and who others perceive them to be. The Good Friday Agreement, miracle that it was, was in fact preserving the status quo in Northern Ireland in the sense that it left Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. But all around that status quo, it built infrastructure, the North-South uh, engagement between the Republic and the North of Ireland, the East-West. These are all Scotland Bocce. They are there in the background. And the value was that it did not force people to say, who do you think you are and how do you identify? And by the way, if you identify as non-aligned, we still identify you as aligned. So this is the worry about a border poll, because the border poll brings up and forces people to delve deep into those issues of history and identity um, and come to a, a conclusion on who they are. It brings that visceral identity politics mm -hmm. out into the open. Mm -hmm. So as a constitutional lawyer and as someone who um, thinks with and feels with um, Northern Ireland, it is a word of caution. Before presuming we should have a border poll, the lesson of the very recent history in relation to Brexit is to hold off before we presume that that is something we need. Maybe some ambiguity, some softening of the border, some 
uh, upholstering and soft furnishings and a connection between people who are just going about their daily lives, maybe that is the, the best way forward rather than forcing the grand constitutional questions which in turn bring up um, uh, the deeper issues. So the Good Friday Agreement was a miracle and it was a miracle even though it was to a large extent preserving the status quo, changing that status quo at a time when the hinterland, the supporting structures in the United Kingdom, though not I think in the Republic of Ireland, though maybe as well, <coughs> they are volatile as well. Uh, the challenge is enormous, it's not insurmountable, but, but it's a bigger challenge even than the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, so on that note I'll finish uh, and welcome everybody's contributions. <coughs>